Arsenal for Democracy is freely available weekly at arsenalfordemocracy.com or Apple and Stitcher. And we're supported by some listeners at patreon.com slash arsenalfordemocracy for $3 a month. The show is recorded and produced by me, Bill Humphrey, in Newton, Massachusetts. Our theme music is produced by Stuntbird. Follow us on Facebook or at AFD Radio on Twitter. The show is not affiliated with any campaign committee, and each participant's opinions are their own. This man is your land. This man is my land. California. New York Island. The Redwood Forest. Gulf Stream Waters. This hand was made you and me. You're listening to Arsenal for Democracy, episode 442, recorded on Sunday, October 2nd, 2022. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Joining me on the line from Idaho, as always, is Rachel. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Bill. Glad to have the team back together again. Yes, me too. And in honor of that, we're going to focus in real deep on Idaho. Uh, but if you're not someone who is super into Idaho or understands why we would be talking that much about Idaho, buckle up, stick with us. This is going to be a great episode, and you're going to find out why some stuff we're going to be talking about in Idaho has a lot of relevance to the rest of American history. So at the end of July of this year, 2022, I drove on U.S. Interstate 84 from Boise, Idaho, where I was visiting my co-host, Rachel, to Twin Falls, Idaho, on my way to Utah. That interstate follows the Oregon Trail in that section. The coolest things I saw were Snake River Canyon and Shoshone Falls Hydroelectric Waterfall. But the most interesting thing I saw for the purposes of our leftist program on American industrial history and historical capitalism were the endless fields of green along the highway in the middle of the desert, growing things like sugar beets, potatoes, and corn. This was a demonstration of what I had just learned that weekend at the Idaho State Museum about the early 20th century, quote, desert reclamation, end quote, projects under the Cary Act of 1894. Although this legislation, which we'll be talking about today, was intended by the federal government to spur the agricultural development of large swaths of publicly owned desert and semi-desert regions in the western United States, Idaho ended up being one of the few big success stories of the effort. In fact, that eight-county agricultural zone in southern Idaho in the Snake River Plain was nicknamed the Magic Valley. An outright majority of all irrigated Cary Act lands nationwide ended up being reclaimed, as they call it, in Idaho. We'll explain today what all of that means and the broader context of this legislation. But I did want to note first that the official position of Idaho is that this area is actually a very literal reclamation of naturally irrigated lands that were not supposed to be desert in the first place, and, fascinatingly enough, historically had not been, because the British Hudson's Bay Company created a deliberate policy of hunting beavers to extermination as fast as possible in what is today southern Idaho, with the explicit intent of converting a green area filled with beaver dams into a dried-out wasteland as a deterrent to American migration into the Oregon country. At the time, from 1818 to 1846, the U.S. and Britain shared control of that territory. There were, of course, also many indigenous nations there too, which we are intending to cover in a future separate episode. 
This extermination program by the Hudson's Bay Company is covered in great detail in a 2003 article by Jennifer Ott in Oregon Historical Quarterly called Ruining the Rivers in the Snake Country, the Hudson's Bay Company's Fur Desert Policy. In any case, Idaho believes that the Act irrigations in the Magic Valley of southern Idaho are a restoration of the beaver-irrigated ways of the past, and obviously it makes a lot of money for agribusiness. This latter point is going to be a recurring theme of today's episode, but that is perhaps less fun than the famous parachuting of beavers back into the southern Idaho backcountry to try to restore the population. And you can read more about that at a Time.com article that we've linked in the show notes that will be up at arsenalfordemocracy.com in a PDF with this episode. So let's talk about the Great American Desert. To understand the origins of the Cary Act, we do need to go back to the era of the Great American Desert, which probably contributed to the British policy strategy of deliberate desertification in the Idaho area in the early 19th century, although this area is not actually part of the Great American Desert, and the idea here is that the British would be trying to extend that. So, what are we talking about? U.S. government geographer Edwin James, after participating in an 1823 expedition to map more areas of the Louisiana Purchase, wrote of the region located approximately between the Rocky Mountains and the 100th meridian of longitude, so that's on the eastern side of the Rocky Mountains as opposed to the Idaho areas that we're going to be talking about. And his quote was, Although tracts of fertile land considerably extensive are occasionally to be met with, the scarcity of wood and water, almost uniformly prevalent, will prove an insuperable obstacle in the way of settling the country. This vast region, again on the eastern side of the Rocky Mountains, was then labeled the Great American Desert because of that relative lack of water and trees, although it was more of a grassland than the modern meaning of desert would imply. And things did not much improve on the west side of the Rocky Mountains either, where, of course, the desert continued or got even worse until at least the Sierra Nevada Mountains between what is today California and Nevada. This all meant that many white, or in some cases black, American migrant settlers tended to skip over these arid areas of the growing United States and proceed instead to the Pacific coast. That was a harrowing and deadly overland journey in the era before the Transcontinental Railroad. You can therefore see why the British Hudson's Bay Company might have tried to make the Oregon Trail migrations even less appealing by destroying more of the terrain through rapid beaver depopulation in the areas that were not desert. Then, something extremely unfortunate happened. This region, the Great American Desert, got a whole bunch of unusual rain in the mid-19th century, something assumed by the pseudoscience of the day to be a permanent development. The shaky logic of this theory at the time was called rain follows the plow, and this presumed that human habitation and the cultivating land in arid and semi-arid lands increases the humidity in the area and creates a positive feedback loop that increased the fecundity of the land as more people moved in. This is, to be clear, not really backed up by anything, according to modern science. This, however, at the time was widely believed, and that convinced everyone in power that the Great American Desert was actually an extremely habitable and farmable territory that should be seized immediately from the indigenous nations and distributed by the government to homesteaders and railroad companies for settlement and development. This period of higher-than-normal rainfall leading to increased westward agricultural settlement, which also played a contributing role in the Kansas-Nebraska Act crisis leading to the American Civil War, was actually a fluke, and the long-term result of that erratic climate 
was the collapse of countless independent farmers and the rise of heavily capitalized agricultural business enterprises that could afford to drill for non-renewable aquifer water deep underground instead of relying on rains and rivers. The federal government then had to shift from encouraging individual small-scale homesteaders to encouraging financial investment in complex irrigation projects on much larger properties. This leads us to the Desert Land Act of 1877, which were enacted basically at the end of this rainy period or after the rainy period had ended, and uh, these were enacted as revisions to the Homestead Act of 1862, sort of the peak of this uh, attempt to settle the Great American Desert. And the Desert Land Act of 1877 was one of the uh, attempts to change the course in federal policy for these arid flatlands and foothills on either side of the Rocky Mountains. Interestingly, Oregon Territory areas, like Idaho, had actually always allowed for much larger homestead acreages, and agribusiness or timber industry promoters spent the mid to late 1870s pushing for the rest of western public lands to be given the same large acreage homesteading rules, which of course often allowed corporations to pay people to stake out a pretend homestead claim on a large tract of land that these companies wanted to farm, ranch, or log, and then sell it to those companies as soon as they were legally able to do so, basically a straw purchase system. The Desert Land Act of 1877 widened the scale of properties being developed and it greatly loosened the requirements for actual residency on homesteads, and most critically, they added an emphasis on private or community irrigation, all of which facilitated the flow of industrial and financial capital investments from outside the region into developing water resources in the Mountain West and Plains. The federal government adopted further amendments in the late 1880s after determining that not enough irrigation was being developed as required. We would also refer listeners back to our episode on the Long Depression and the Panic of 1893 for more on the final death blow to unconsolidated and indebted smallholder farmers in this region in favor of consolidated agribusiness with access to major eastern capital formations. Ultimately, the revised Desert Lands Act was still considered insufficient for promoting irrigation for farming in this region of the United States. Rachel? So that determination led in 1894 to the passage of the Cary Act, attached to a larger appropriations bill by Wyoming Senator Joseph Maul Cary. This legislation completely dropped the pretense of smallholders, homesteaders, somehow being able to irrigate the U.S. public lands of the Great American Desert. Instead, the federal government finally handed off that responsibility to private agricultural companies with wage laborers hired from all over the U.S. to work their fields and build water infrastructure to support those fields. That's not to say that homesteading went away, because as late as 1910, the number of new homesteads peaked at 15,000. But in terms of watering the blooming desert, that would be private capital's job. State governments were also given a significant role in regulating and implementing the Cary Act. Some states did not do much with it because they lacked the financial resources to do so, despite large areas of public desert and semi-desert land. But Idaho and Wyoming took to it with gusto, eventually receiving millions of additional acres of federal lands to work on. Um, Quoting from the Wikipedia article on the Cary Act, um, Wyoming was home to some of the first projects under the Cary Act, including the Cody Canal, financed by a group of investors led by William F. Cody and supported by then-state engineer Elwood Mead. So Wyoming was the other success story, but today we're definitely focusing in on Idaho's success under the Cary Act. 
Now, Rachel, tell me about this next source you're going to cite, because that was a fun one. Yeah, so we found uh, a discussion of this from the Idaho Potato Museum website. Um, so obviously, they're very focused on the cult cultivation of potatoes, even though other crops are also pretty prevalent in southern Idaho. Like you said, pot uh, uh, sugar beets, corn, hops, other crops. But obviously, Idaho is, is colloquially known as the potato state, and we did find a source that kind of spoke to that. So quoting from the Idaho Potato Museum website, um, Idaho benefited from the Cary Act far more than did any other state. About 60% of all lands irrigated in the United States under the Cary Act are in Idaho. Over the period of 40 years, the state of Idaho received 618,000 acres of previously desert arid land. The overall benefit from the construction of dams and canals, the settlement of farms, the birth of towns and cities, and the production of crops on the economy of Idaho is impossible to measure. Cary Act reclamation projects have put substantial tracts of land under cultivation that became family farms and were utilized to grow Idaho potatoes. Without this one piece of legislation, many of today's potato fields would be range for cattle and sheep. High lift pumping opened up even more of the desert lands to farming. Several projects were developed to bring water from the Snake River. The water was pumped 500 to 725 feet up from the river. The combination of private citizens and private lending institutions expanding the agricultural economy of Idaho by adding significantly to potato production must certainly be included in the history of the industry. It is one of the noteworthy eras in the story of the potato in Idaho, an era, however, that belonged to the past when there was plentiful desert entry land, cheap energy, and lower development costs. So I, I thought that was an interesting, well-rounded, somewhat nuanced uh, take on, on the development of, of land and the cultivation of the potato. Um, kind of surprising for, for coming from the source. Another uh, state that got Cary Act uh, consideration, but it wasn't quite as successful, was Utah. Uh, Utah only had one successful Cary Act project near the modern-day town of Delta, um, formerly Deseret, Utah. And quoting from an article from waterhistory.org, uh, the Delta Cary Act project ultimately developed approximately 30% of the Delta area agriculture. There are three primary reasons why this project succeeded where other Cary Act projects failed. First, and most importantly, the Oasis Land and Water Company bought a basic prior water right. Second, the developers were private investors who started with the hopes of making substantial profits. The tenacity of good businessmen determined to protect their investments was an important factor in staying the course. Finally, the third reason, the settlers demonstrated a great deal of tenacity of their own during some very difficult times. Such will to succeed assured the successful development of water resources in the Delta area. Uh, so I think, um, as Bill pointed out, the fact that there were um, giant tracts of land basically being sold or given away really uh, encouraged these large, large agribusiness investment companies to come in and fund these projects. I think if there had been bigger um, restrictions on the amount of land that could be um, developed by a certain company, it definitely wouldn't have been successful. So Idaho had that history of being very business friendly, um, very uh, development friendly. So I think that really led to the success story in Idaho. So as we have said, however, most Western states did not take advantage of the provisions of the Cary Act from 1894. And the federal government continued to be frustrated by the slow pace of private and local irrigation in the region. 
This led in 1902 to the creation of the U.S. Reclamation Service of the U.S. Geological Survey to oversee major public works projects for irrigating the American West and delivering drinking water to the growing cities in these states. This agency renamed the Bureau of Reclamation and moved to the, to the Interior Department in 1907 would be funded in part by the continued sale of the extensive federal public lands in the Western states. And uh, quoting from an article about the Reclamation Act, in the Reclamation Act of 1902, Congress for the first time approved federal efforts in the large scale planning and construction of irrigation works for the storage, diversion, and development of waters in arid and semi-arid Western states. Under the act, federal reclamation projects were funded by a newly established reclamation fund in the United States Treasury. Initially, the fund received receipts from the sale of federal land in the Western United States, along with repayments by beneficiaries for reclamation's construction costs for water projects. Authorized activities under the Reclamation Act were limited to 16 designated reclamation states on lands west of the Mississippi River. Arizona, California, Colorado, Idaho, Kansas, Montana, Nebraska, Nevada, New Mexico, North Dakota, Oklahoma, Oregon, South Dakota, Utah, Washington, and Wyoming. A 17th reclamation state, Texas, was added in 1906. Under the Reclamation Act, Congress allotted settlers up to 160 acres of land to be irrigated by a reclamation project, provided the lands were reclaimed for agricultural purposes and water users repaid the federal government for project construction expenses and associated operations and maintenance, or O&M costs. Congress established a 10-year repayment period for reclamation projects in the Reclamation Act and directed the payments into the Reclamation Fund for new and ongoing project investments by the Bureau. Pursuant to Reclamation Law, i.e. the body of federal law that informs the development and management of projects by the Bureau of Reclamation, interest payments were not required for the repayment of construction costs by agricultural beneficiaries. And ultimately, these projects continued until the end of the 1960s or the end of the 1970s as environmental opposition and other considerations and criticisms mounted against federal dam projects, especially in the wake of the 1972 Teton Dam collapse. We'll probably be coming back to this in a future separate episode. But Bureau of Reclamation aside, Southern Idaho remains a verdant agricultural area because of the Cary Act irrigation projects of the early 20th century. And now you know the history of that in the context in which it happened. But those ecological questions linger, um, especially as to whether uh, the land originally was supposed to be this verdant agricultural area or whether it was definitely mostly human engineered and we've kind of created a myth around reclaiming the desert so to speak yeah so i wanted to talk a little bit more about that obviously i don't live there and you do live there but uh that was interesting to me because especially with my you know family background in places like california and so forth i mean water politics is always complicated and a touchy subject in the american west but I thought it was interesting that in Idaho, which is a major agricultural producer, that there is this narrative that is seemingly at least somewhat supported uh, by the historical facts that this area used to be very green within U.S. history even, right? Not even pre-U.S. history. Not, not We're not talking about pre-Columbian or anything like that. We're talking about, you know, within... <laughs> Uh, a very uh, recent span of time, we're talking 200 years ago, that this was a, 
a green verdant area, not a huge desert. And the question is, should that have been returned to that condition? Because in other parts of the U.S. where we talk about reclamation, it's reclamation in the same sense as like a reclamation project in the Netherlands or, you know, some swamp in Germany or some forest in Germany. You're taking, you know, bad land since the Middle Ages, quote unquote, bad land, right? And and using human engineering, whether it's systems of dams or dikes or canals or whatever, to turn that into farmable land that you can make profits off of and that kind of thing, right? Uh, that is a longstanding tradition. Uh, in many cases, you're taking it in the United States context from indigenous nations and then doing something else with it. But in Idaho, the narrative, as we said, is a little bit different. But that question, I think, remains, is that an appropriate, like, once it has become desert, is it appropriate to be doing all of this human engineering which is, of course, not the same as the beaver engineering, but certainly has some similarities anyway. Is that an appropriate place to be doing agriculture, or is that not a good use of uh, resources and, and things like that? Yeah, especially once you take into consideration those like high pump projects um, that I talked about earlier, you're, it takes a huge amount of energy to pump water, what was it, like 500 feet um, above the, the river level, um, so is that a worthwhile project or would the land be put to better use as grazing land? Um, obviously, huge uh, tracts of land in Idaho, um, especially southwest Idaho, are grazing lands because they're just not arable. Um, you can't grow anything on that land. So then it's good grazing land because um, there's like grasses and, and shrubs and other things. Um, so would that be a better use of land, a more... Um, uh, efficient use of the land, uh, less energy intensive, um, less resource heavy. Uh, that's, that's an interesting question. Um, I think people get caught up in agriculture and the question of like factory farming um, versus like pasture farming, which can be a good use of land, um, not to get too political on, on the other BLM side of things. Um, the the more well-known BLM acronym um, meaning in, in the West versus the East. Um, I think land management is a huge uh, hot button issue here um, versus like um, whether it is arable, whether we should be cultivating it for agriculture instead of, of grazing lands. I certainly hadn't heard anything until we went to this museum about this beaver extirpation campaign I mean, we know that beavers were hunted to near extinction in many parts of North America, especially by the Hudson's Bay Company, but that this was undertaken as a deliberate policy to destroy the local environment in order to try to reduce the amount of uh, migration traffic pretty unsuccessfully, I would say, across this area of land, which did, in fact, you know, there were large tracts where people had to go without water for prolonged periods uh, of time during this crossing, uh, and this would have previously been an area that had, you know, freshwater ponds all over the place. Yeah, this was uh, a recent uh, revelation to me as well. I think I, I think of uh, beaver trapping as more of like a Canadian um, historical uh, event versus uh, happening in southern, especially in southern Idaho. Like maybe it, it, it sounds more natural in like northern Idaho, which is more forested um, versus southern Idaho, which is a little bit um, 
rockier, less, uh, less, uh, forested. Um, so it's interesting to, to learn that it did happen as far South as, as Twin Falls, Idaho, this, this, uh, extermination policy. So let's zoom out here a little bit more. You and I were talking about a lot of this off the air before we started recording. How do you see this fitting in as we tried to do a little bit of contextual stuff with talking about things like the great American desert and so forth? How do you see this fitting in with the broader questions of the way in which like issues like arability of land, soil quality, uh, irrigation, rainfall levels, how do you see that fitting in with the broader story of not only American history, but American capitalist history? Yeah, uh, well, obviously, this this settlement of the, the American Plain States has, has been huge in American history, like the Dust Bowl, obviously, is a huge um, part of American history, a huge tragedy that affected millions of people's lives. Um, and then now today, uh, it is kind of the agricultural breadbasket of the country. Um, but we are seeing increased rainfall, flooding events. Um, so it's, it's combined with droughts at the same time so that they have to pump more from the aquifers and so forth. Yeah. It's, it's, it's obviously not a very stable region climate wise. So I, I think, uh, yeah, this, this story of, of, I think we're still kind of living under the waterfall. Rainfall is the plow. Um, however debunked it's been, we've still kind of given into it and we're still str- trying really hard and struggling to um, cultivate in the Midwest, which maybe isn't the smartest thing to do if we were looking at it from a purely scientific um, point of view, kind of outside of this history of, of moving into the great American desert and, and trying to, Uh, to start up agriculture there. Now, despite the conditions being somewhat different on the eastern and western side of the Rocky Mountains, again, as you were just talking about the Great Plains, that's on the eastern side of the Rocky Mountains. The areas of Idaho that we've been talking about, I would say, are on, what, the western side for the most part. Do you view those as distinct or do you view those as kind of a continuum? Because... As we said, to some degree, there was this jumping over process that happened where for a long time, migrants from the east would skip over those areas and continue further out west. You know, uh, Oregon coast and California certainly have a lot more greenery uh, zones than some of these areas they were passing through uh, in terms of, I mean, obviously the Great Plains are green in a sense, but that's not what I'm talking about. Um, But on the other hand, we see that you know the British approach this area as being on a path with the Oregon Trail. Other policies clearly sort of regard these as uh, maybe there's some distinctions, but there's also some similarities here. Clearly, the focus on the western side seems to be these large-scale irrigation projects that are based on like damming and things like that, as opposed to on the eastern side where it's a lot more focused on the aquifers, um, but you get a mixing and matching there. How do you view these um, geographically and and the way that that affected policy? I I definitely do see them as distinct. I mean, the Rocky Mountains are literally the continental divide. So I think even from that geological viewpoint, like they are very distinct regions. Um, And I think uh, you can't really treat them as as contiguous because there is the Rocky Mountains 
smack dab between them. Um, and yeah, also I think the approaches were so different. Like you said, damming projects kind of more on the Western side, which makes sense because, um, the rivers are close to the source. Um, their, their source is basically the Rocky mountains, um, forming into these large rivers. So I think the fact that Idaho land was so close to the source of the rivers that they could be treated in this way. And the dams were so successful there versus the East where it, it seems like it just wasn't as successful in this. The reclamation probably doesn't feed into that, that reclaiming the desert um, narrative that, that seems to work so well in Idaho. Um, it's, it doesn't feel as accurate to say that you're reclaiming the land um, rather than drastically changing the face of it. It's interesting to me, though, that these desert acts and irrigation-focused acts were amended onto the Homestead Acts, which tended to be for the eastern side of the Rockies predominantly, and then certain parts of places like California and so forth. Um, I also think we did note during the course of the narrative that the policies in southern Idaho were actually policies that were separate and distinct for a long time from the rest of the country, because they had a separate set of policies for the Oregon Territory, which this was part of. Um, I think that matters. That makes a difference. And and you get things like the Idaho timber industry being such a big thing. How do you see the role, that question of the, the linkages between the, the financial capital formations in the East and these projects, whether it's timber projects, agriculture projects, ranching projects, or just irrigation for whatever use? That, yeah. to me, seems like a significant story here and also one that the homesteading policies deliberately or inadvertently lead to. Yeah, I think, um, like I mentioned earlier, Idaho already had these super investor-friendly policies. And the Cary Act did kind of have this gap. It was very reliant on private funding, which I think is why other states failed where Idaho succeeded. We already had huge amounts of capital pouring in from mining companies, from timber companies. So I think Idaho is in a prime spot to really take that private funding and really do do more with it than other states were able to. Um, so I think I think the fact that we kind of started out more as like a resource extraction territory versus a homesteading. I think the people came later. Um, basically. And I think so that that really shaped how it worked in Idaho, the fact that that it was so business friendly versus trying to just give away land to to citizen homesteaders instead. Um, I think that 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 is a huge key to, to why it works so well in Idaho. It's also, you know, I, I was I did say deliberately or inadvertently, I come down on the side of this was probably I mean, had to be a deliberate policy. I think it would be hard to argue otherwise, just that you could have added in safeguards if you didn't want major capital formations to acquire all this land. We know that they weren't that interested in that because at the same time as they were doing these, you know, yeoman farmer, small hold homestead uh, laws, they were also giving away enormous tracts of land to the railroads. This was part of the deal for financing the construction of things like the Transcontinental Railroad. You give the company all of the land along their right-of-way on either side for quite a distance, and then they are allowed to sell it off however they want so they can, like, develop towns along it and so forth and 
and kind of generate their own economic ecosystem there along all these different railroad stops. Uh, they could have built in safeguards into the Homestead Act. Um, for example, uh, you know, since I just went on that trip to Cuba, it's on my mind that the system that Cuba implemented with their n land nationalization and redistribution uh, in the actually the in the pre-socialist phase of the revolution, this is like 1959 and so forth. Um, the idea was like the government will give you land as part of this redistribution scheme, but you don't get to just sell it to anyone if you don't want it anymore. You can pass it on to someone in your family or you can sell it back to the government uh, or give it back to the government or whatever, but you can't just sell it to some company because they didn't want all of the same people to end up with the land again after the government had redistributed it because there's always going to be that pressure. Uh, and, and as we talked about, in some cases, homesteaders went bankrupt from all the debt you know, accrued and they have to buy tractors, they have to buy seed, etc. And so they were forced to sell. But in many cases, we had these unscrupulous, quote unquote, homesteaders who were really straw purchasers, right? They would go out, fulfill the legal minimum requirements to get the land freely from the government and then sell it to anyone they wanted to. There was no protection against that. That is, of course, going to end up in the hands of these, you know, timber companies or ranching companies or agribusiness companies and so forth. It could have been set up differently. It wasn't. Again, to emphasize, this was largely land that was being seized by, you know, from Native American groups. Um, I'll refer folks back as well to the episode that we did on the the Southern agriculture in the Deep South. Things like the Cherokee dispossession and the Trail of Tears directly relates to, okay, where is the best soil for cotton production? Well, it's underneath the Cherokee Nation, so they got to go. And then we're going to redistribute that land. Um, that is a important part of that story. Um, and Nate did an episode on that. Uh, it was our March 14th, 2021 episode on the cotton gin and Southern capitalism. And basically in the antebellum period, especially. Um, and, you know, again, speaks to this issue that we sort of touched on very briefly earlier in this episode, which is that issues like soil quality, rainfall, irrig irrigation capacity, things like that arability, that has an enormous effect on geopolitical policy and other sort of policies within the United States. Things like expanding slavery into the Nebraska territory or pushing it to the West or potentially talking about going into Latin America and so forth, that all has to do with varying levels of rainfall and soil quality in these different places. Not entirely, but that's definitely a factor that you can't overlook. And you look on the maps of the southern United States, where were they producing things like cotton versus indigo versus tobacco versus these other crops. And that also has a lot to do with what the types of soil were in different places, what the rainfall was, that sort of thing. Um, and we see then the concentrations of slavery to go with that, but it's not uniform, which is also why you have these pockets of, you know, hard scrabble hill country unionists that don't back the... Uh, secession of the southern states and are not slaveholders themselves or in, or in many cases are very rarely slaveholders as opposed to these giant nearby forced labor camp plantation operations that were sort of like factory farming uh like the prototype for factory farming so all of these things fit together there's also various other links and sources as we said that'll be up in a pdf at arsenalfordemocracy.com when this episode goes up uh but rachel any final concluding thoughts on 
what the Cary Act tells us about not only the state of Idaho's history and present, but also the history of the United States uh, and particularly the American West. Well, uh, I, I kind of keep uh, have I, I have a phrase that keeps kind of ringing through my mind, and it's uh, from uh, Matt Chrisman's and Chris Wade's uh, miniseries Hell of Presidents, and it's, it, they kept repeating, "It's free real estate." Um, from like Tim and Eric. Um, and that this definitely was a part of that. It's free real estate period of U S history, um, leading to this Western expansion, this, uh, this moving into lands that for uses that it probably wasn't meant to be used for, but it was free. So we might as well just reach out and grab it and take it. Right. And obviously, as they're saying, has the social uh, and thus political downstream effects that you can control and manage the level of like industrial outbursts and labor actions that are happening in the East and, you know, reduce and tamp down revolutionary potential by pushing out at least some of these discontented folks uh, to the West to try their hand at homesteading or fake homesteading to then cash out and sell to a timber company or whatever. Um and again, we emphasized this in that episode that I referenced earlier about the Long Depression and the Panic of 1893 and so forth, but it is important to remember these things are happening simultaneously in these two different parts of the country. They're having very different experiences, but this is all happening at the same time, right? The 1877 reforms with regard to desert lands that we talked about in this episode, that's happening the same year as the as the massive wave of strikes on American railroads in the East in 1877, that leads to some very gnarly situations, especially in places like Pittsburgh. This is all happening at the same time. It's, I think that's an important point to underscore because it can be very easy the way that U S history is told and mythologized to bifurcate these in your mind and not think about them being contemporaneous to each other, right? You can think about, you know, frontier cowboys and Indians type movies and books and things like that, and then mentally separate that completely from all of the labor unrest and organizing that's happening in the Eastern industrial cities. And remember, that Eastern industrial production is, is generating the enormous capital profits that are then being redirected back into places like the West for agricultural development, irrigation capacity, and things like that. These are all completely interrelated systems. You cannot separate them from each other, and they are happening at the same time, so it's important to understand that. All right, Rachel, thank you so much for joining me this week to talk about some Idaho American history. Thanks. It was, it was a great topic this week.